service. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about my Tacovas cowboy boots. I picked them up while I was in Austin, Texas. I had this event I had to go to that night. It was a formal thing. I had this idea of what I was going to wear, but I needed the one extra thing. And I was like, aha, Tacovas. There's a Tacovas here in Austin. The dudes who worked at the store were great. I found the exact boot I was looking for. This boot is called the Dylan. I got it in midnight black. I wore them to this formal event. I had on a suit. And then tonight, I'm going to wear them with jeans to my son's baseball game. These things are amazing cowboy boots. They're super comfortable, and I can tell already that they're going to last for a long time. A couple things you can do here to check out Tacovis. If you can, stop by your local Tacovis store. Have a complimentary drink or two. The experience is awesome. You can shop all the new styles. You're going to smell that fresh leather in the store. The friendly staff are going to be at your service. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you feel like a rock star. A lot of the Tacovis stores have these leather custom branding services to make your boots truly personalized. They put on regular live music and events. It's an awesome in-store experience. So if you have the opportunity to check out a Tacova store, I highly recommend it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges. And they ship right to your door. Go to tacovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about the Ramones are insane. They sniffed glue, bombed unsuspecting Queens residents with heavy television sets, attempted to brain the Beatles with rocks. One Ramone was locked up in a psych ward, another forced to turn tricks for heroin. And despite it all as a band, the Ramones managed to survive and inspire an entire new generation of rock and rollers at a time when the genre seemed near dead. And man oh man, did the Ramones make great music some of the greatest music ever made. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Fluorescent Function Hall MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Love is Alive by Gary Wright. And why would I play you that specific slice of Dreamweaver cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on July 4th, 1976, and that was the day the Ramones first played London, an act that marked the band's first major step towards saving rock and roll. On this episode, sniffing glue, TV bombs, psych wards, heroin, and saving rock and roll with the Ramones. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. The summer of love, helter-skelter and the coming nihilism of the 70s was impossible to imagine. Yet there it was, just around the bend. Rock and roll was the most culturally relevant it would ever be. Few knew it, but rock and roll was also taking its first steps toward death, toward corporate rock, toward disco. 
rock music wasn't dead, but it would be soon, and so too would some unlucky hitchhikers out on Interstate 69 between Flint, Michigan and South Bend, Indiana. The van was an old shipbox with a big V8 and dark cargo area in the back. Killing the recent hitchhiker they picked up was never the plan. They needed one more, a fourth, to help them dispose of the bodies, so he was a recruit, not a victim. Plus, they liked him straight away. He had that dumb charm about him. His name even sounded dumb. Doug. Douglas Colvin of Queens, New York. The next hitchhiker they encountered, though, wouldn't be so lucky. He or she would be decapitated, garroted with a thin wire and two hoops. Fuck them. Whoever they were, they deserved it. Society deserved it, and so its children would not be spared. But first, some smokes were needed. Doug Colvin breathed a sigh of relief. He wasn't going in for all this crazy murder talk. He just needed a ride. Out west, away from his mom in Queens, who had caught the 15-year-old using heroin, freaked out and provoked this teenage runaway act. The van rolled into an abandoned roadside gas station parking lot. The plan was armed robbery. It went nowhere. The would-be killers were stoned, bumbling marauders who were rounded up by local cops almost as soon as they made off from the gas station with the stolen goods. Doug was thrown into jail with his accomplices for armed robbery. Instinctively, the cops knew he was not like the others and showed mercy. They gave him as many as 10 phone calls to try and contact an adult or guardian to arrange his release. And they weren't even going to try him. They just didn't want to release him back into the wild on his own. Which was exactly what they ended up doing after his father, when reached by phone, told Doug, Fuck you. Rot there. You deserve it. He was on his own, and that was clear. The small-town cops weren't about to get into the headache of caring for this clearly too-dumb-to-do-any-harm juvenile delinquent, so they just let him go after three weeks. Doug hitched back to Queens. And there, he quickly took up with another local cast-off, John Cummings. He, too, was fascinated by murder. Charlie Starkweather, the 19-year-old James Dean-looking psychopath who went on a one-week Midwestern murder spree with his 14-year-old girlfriend at his side, killing 10 people in the process, including her family, for no other reason than the fact that they didn't like him or his teenage attitude. John Cummings felt that. Doug Colvin did, too. Doug thought it hysterical that when the Beatles played at Shea Stadium in Queens, John Cummings went and instead of losing his mind to the highly contagious Beatlemania running rampant, focused intently on the four lads on stage and tried to knock any one of them unconscious that he could with the rocks he was beaming at them from the stands. The most celebrated band on the planet, in the history of the world, in person. The band who would inspire the name of his own band less than a decade later, and he was throwing stones at them. There was no real reason, just anger. Jeff Hyman, another teenage cast-off from Queens, felt something else. It wasn't anger so much as it was alienation and heartache. Whatever it was, it drove him to the margins. Forest Hills, Queens, back in the 60s anyway, was conservative, working the middle class. Young boys went to school, kept their hair short, went to college or got a job, found a girl, eventually started families, and kept their mouths shut. All the shouting about the war, about inequality, about peace, and about love, that was for the city. That was a subway ride in a world away. Queens was for working, for raising your family. Jeff didn't want a family. Even if he did, he wouldn't know how to start one. Talking to girls wasn't easy, unless they were the girls he met in the mental hospital. St. Vincent's, where he'd been sent as a teenager when his obsessive compulsive tics, like repeatedly getting in and out of bed before going to sleep, escalated into an undiagnosed case of paranoid schizophrenia. A mild case, quote unquote, minimal brain damage, as the doctor said. 
small comfort to Jeff's mother, who Jeff had pulled a knife on during one of his episodes. Once he was old enough, she kicked him out of the house and he began living in her art gallery, sleeping on the floor alone. For Jeff, normal life wasn't even an option. So when he brought a girl around to his new friends and told them that he met her in the bin as in the loony bin, no one was that surprised. Psychotherapy had its perks, went the thinking, but the loony bin was no joke. Jeff knew this, teenage lobotomies foisted upon teenagers for what they perceived as just being misunderstood though, that was fucking messed up. None of it made any sense, not to Jeff and not to his new friends, John and Doug. They rebelled and bonded over music. John was into Sabbath, The Stones, Hendrix, music that was as tough and as hard as the construction jobs he worked. But none of this music, it seemed, was going anywhere. It all felt like part of the same thing, the same hippy-dippy-doomed-to-fail experiment. Increasingly, it was clear, rock and roll's energy was fading. Their new friend, Tommy, agreed. He would know he was at least in the music business, sort of. He engineered some records, even worked on Jimi Hendrix's band of gypsy sessions at the record plant in Manhattan, which, for a kid from Forest Hills, was saying something. As far as Doug, John, and Jeff knew, their new friend Tommy might as well have been Phil Spector. And they loved Phil Spector's records, the girl group stuff. And they were, right now, all four of them, half-assing an acapella version of The Crystals' The Do Run Run, while they struggled up the stairway of the fifth-floor walk-up with the 25-inch Philco television set. It wasn't a console TV set, but it was still heavy as fuck. The picture tubes inside these old TVs were big, and in the Philcos, problematic. Not like the reliable RCAs, the Philcos went bust and confounded even the best of Forest Hills television repairmen, so many of the lemons ended up on the bubblegum-freckled sidewalks of Queens, waiting for some unlucky trash man to haul them away. But not if Doug, John, Jeff, and Tommy had anything to do with it. The TVs were great delinquent fodder, so up the stairwells to the roofs they went. After finally squeezing the set up the stairs, they hauled the TV out onto the roof. They all knew what they were there to do. This ritual, they'd done it before so many times, it was old hat. They discussed music nonchalant. Rock is dead, Tommy said to no one, while Jeff continued to mumble out the chorus to the do run run. Yeah, Doug parroted. He didn't seem too convinced, more agreeable, more wanting than the others to just be a part of whatever was in the air, part of the game. The opposite of John, who it seemed didn't care who liked him or what people thought of him, not even his new friends. They pulled the TV over to the edge of the roof. John spoke up in transit. Is this new band downtown supposed to be good? Oh yeah, as good as Del Shannon, Jeff spat out. As good as the Stooges from Detroit, Doug asked. He didn't really know how good the Stooges were. They were just something he'd heard some kids downtown talk about. If he were being honest, he'd have asked if they were as good as the Bay City Rollers. He knew about the Rollers. He loved the Rollers, but he wasn't sure if John did. Didn't matter. John ignored him anyway. They're called the Dolls. The New York Dolls. The four of them then reached the edge of the roof with the TV, and they peered over down at the sidewalk. It was a long way down. We should go see them play. Oh yeah, what if there's girls there? Jeff wanted to know, as if that would be unimaginable. They all bent down in unison, gripped the Philco from the bottom, bent with their knees like only young working men know how, and heaved the heavy television set up into the edge of the roof. They steadied it and waited for the perfect target on the sidewalk below. Little old ladies were the best. They scared easy, dropped their groceries, sometimes fell over, most times just stood back clutching their chests, catching their breaths and looking bewildered. It was hysterical. But new moms were even better. 
They were so uptight with their little brats running them ragged. Here came one now, and they waited. The shows are supposed to be wild, John said. I mean, we should really go see this band. We should start our own band, Tommy said. They all looked at each other, and then they looked down at the bitchy mom and her bratty little kid. Tommy's suggestion was a good one, and John scowled in agreement. Doug's eyes went wide, and Jeff nodded. All of them looked down to the sidewalk, just as the mom and the brat walked directly below them, and then they pushed the television set over the side of the roof. It exploded onto the sidewalk in just over a second's time, landing about two feet behind the mom. She screamed, and so did the brat. Doug, John, Jeff, and Tommy beat it. Do you love bad movies? I'm talking about movies where Jason Statham saves the day or a lifetime thriller about a killer flight instructor or basically anything made in the 1980s that was set in the not too distant future. Now, if all of that seems up your alley, then you are going to love the podcast, How Did This Get Made? I've been listening to this podcast, it seems like for forever, and I keep going back to it because it is hysterical. Every episode, comedians Paul Shear, June Diane Raphael, and Jason Mansukis dissect the best, worst films ever made, and they're often bizarre production stories. Some of you guys are going to know Paul, June, and Jason, the host, from many of their appearances in films, animation, uh, television, on stage, these uh, improv, these guys, great, great, great comics. Uh, and they're just funny as hell. And these episodes are hysterical. They just did this episode on this cult action movie called Samurai Cop. All right, just that title alone tells you that it's going to be funny to digest. Where they, the star of this movie, of course, is a stuntman, goes to prison after filming because they stole a Rembrandt painting at gunpoint from a church. Of course, the best part of this podcast is these guys watch these movies so that you don't have to. And sometimes even they're joined by hilarious guests, Seth Rogen, Conan O'Brien. Okay, I'm not the only one who thinks this show is hysterical. What are you waiting for? Go listen to How Did This Get Made, wherever you get your podcasts. Jeff was fidgeting with the cheap turntable in the loft he was staying at. His new friend, Arturo, was letting him crash indefinitely. And Jeff, who was now calling himself Joey, was trying to get the turntable to play a new prized possession. Charles Manson's album, Lie, The Love and Terror Cult. Look at your game girl, cease to exist. Heavy shit by one of the heaviest and shittiest dudes to ever hit the scene. Music that seemed dangerous as rock and roll was supposed to sound, but increasingly, in the early 70s, sounded watered down and safe. Manson was locked up now, but his music was out in the wild. Hard to find, but Joey managed to snag a copy for his collection, which he kept meticulously in his OCD way. Manson understood girls on a whole other level, a level Joey would never understand. Girls were a mystery. But glue was not, and Joey's friend Doug wanted to sniff some more of it. More, more, more for Doug. When he wasn't getting high sniffing glue, he was doing heroin. Joey heard from a friend that Doug was seen out at 53rd and 3rd over in the West Village, standing on the corner trying to turn a trick for dope. It was a well-known pickup spot for old money dudes cruising for young men who would trade sex for quick cash. Doug did it because he had to, 
because he needed to hit the fountain in Central Park to score dope or the East Village to score blow. Joey didn't judge. Neither did their other friends. It was New York in the 70s, hard as nails, and you had to do what you had to do to get by. Doug was seen, in a way, as a badass for being able to go through with it. And before settling in Forest Hills, Doug was raised a military brat in post-World War II Germany by two drunk, disinterested parents. Doug had toughness bred into him. He learned about drugs from the older GIs, and he learned about rock and roll from Radio Luxembourg. It's where he first heard the Beatles. He was obsessed. His obsession uncovered a little nugget about Paul McCartney. Paul used the alias Paul Ramon to check into hotels inconspicuously. Doug thought it was so cool. So when he started calling himself Didi, he changed his last name from Colvin to Ramon. And also like Paul, Doug started playing bass too. They had a band to put together after all. So Joey, once Jeff Hyman, started calling himself Joey Ramon. And so too did their other bandmates, John and Tommy. But John Ramon stacked up next to Tommy, Joey, and Didi didn't sound right. So Johnny Ramon it was. It would be one of the last compromises Johnny Ramon would ever make. He assumed the role of band leader immediately. He commandeered what would be the Ramon sound and image. There was a war going on after all. Rock and roll was about to be overrun by bloated corporate hacks and discotheques. And their band would have to be different if it was gonna save rock and roll. They'd have to strip out all the frills, cut any and all the fat. Their sound would match their physicality, lean, rock star skinny. No guitar solos, no drum solos, no blues influence, no ballads, no metaphors, no sexual double entendres, no dynamics. They would strip it all away and break rock and roll down to its basic essence, power, speed, energy, and volume, and blast it back at the audience. When at war, you pick a side, join up, and in order to distinguish yourself from your enemy, you wear a uniform. Johnny commanded his troops, Dee Dee, Joey, and Tommy, to do the same, to dress like him, all of them, in black leather biker jackets, skin-tight jeans, skin-tight t-shirts, and cheap tennis shoes, Keds, not Chuck Taylors. They would rely on simplicity for their attack, hitting their audience head-on with a weapon they knew music lovers would fall victim to, something they weren't even aware they were missing, pure rock and roll. 60s girl group and Del Shannon melodies, spirited Beach Boys teenage fun and a directness in the lyrics not deployed as effectively since Dee Dee's Beatles burst on the scene with I Wanna Hold Your Hand. Dee Dee, Johnny and company would counter 11 years later at their band's first show with songs entitled I Don't Wanna Walk Around With You, I Don't Wanna Go Down To The Basement, and of course, now I Wanna Sniff Some Glue. They called themselves the Ramones. Of course they did. And their theater of war was a little dive on the Bowery called CBGB's. It was tiny, completely ramshackle, smelled of piss, cheap to get into and cheaper to drink in. Other like-minded musicians had dug into the club as well. Television, the Patti Smith Group, and Blondie among them, claiming it as their own, separate and apart from whatever was happening elsewhere in Manhattan's fast-declining live music scene. The Ramones' first CB set on August 16, 1974, was welcomed by all in attendance. They were, as Blondie's lead singer Debbie Harry would later remark, hysterical. But Johnny didn't see what was so funny. He was dead serious, and so were his bandmates, despite the fact that they struggled through their set, which took all of 12 minutes, blasting through their songs with manic one, two, three, four count-offs by Dee Dee and failing equipment and the band yelling at one another on stage. They looked and sounded unlike anything anyone had ever seen and were immediately welcomed onto the scene. They were clearly onto something. 
They set up shop at their friend Arturo Vega's loft around the corner from CBGB's on East 2nd Street. In addition to letting Joey and Didi squat at his place and sniff glue and listen to weird Charles Manson records, Arturo designed the band's now iconic logo, a send-up of the presidential seal, which in August of 1974, the month of President Richard Nixon's resignation, was not exactly an aspirational association. Didi, if he was grateful for the logo, didn't show it. He had other things on his mind, like how to get enough money to cop dope and stave off his heroin jones. Artur's loft was on the first floor. The action from the street just outside his windows was constant. Sirens, violent shouting, and the more than occasional brick thrown through the window from dealers pissed off at Didi or his notorious street-walking force-of-nature girlfriend, the highly destructive Connie. East Second was loud. It was going to be one of those nights when the street never goes to sleep. Didi knew it. He was preparing for a long evening. He had no money, no dope, no protection, and no one to help. Connie was gone, Joey was useless, East Second was alive and in his head, coming for him. And there was nothing he could do about it. Couldn't hit the street, the heroin withdrawals were on their way, and they were debilitating, awful, severe experiences. And Didi, all 130 pounds of him, was ill-equipped to deal with the pain, the nausea, the sweating, the aching, the vomiting. He was helpless. Nothing he could do but wait it out. Make like his bandmate Johnny and power through. That gave Didi an idea. If he couldn't protect himself against the withdrawals, he could protect himself against the threat of violence outside his window on East Second, at least for a little while. He needed a weapon, his own bricks to fire back out onto the street if things got heavy while he sweat out his Jones. Didi dragged himself to his feet and headed out behind Arturo's building. And there were loose bricks in the backyard. The city had recently done some excavating for whatever reason, Didi didn't know. He heard there was an old graveyard back there, a long-forgotten city cemetery that had been developed over with tenement and loft buildings. Years of Manhattan development had disrupted the buried bodies, and the city, in order to save space, was forced to erect a brick wall above the ground in Arturo's backyard and rearrange the corpses from their horizontal subterranean resting place into upright space-saving positions inside the brick wall. Didi didn't know about all that, or if he did, he didn't care. What he knew about was that he needed a few bricks. There were none scattered about, but the brick wall looked a bit worse for wear like the rest of the neighborhood. Didi was starting to feel it. The nausea was coming on, and so too was a tinge of paranoia. East Second was shouting out to him like it was coming for him, to chew him up, to spit him out. One more violent vein of this unforgiven, godforsaken city that in the 70s at least seemed hell-bent on cannibalizing its own. The street sounds were intensifying, swirling around Didi. He was starting to sweat, to shake. East Second screamed, and Didi noticed a loose brick in the wall. He started to pull it, shook it a bit, wiggled it looser, looser, pulling it all the way out of the wall. But when the brick finally shook loose from the wall, so too did the skeletal hand of a very old corpse from within the wall. The sight of the dead hand set Didi reeling backward onto his ass. He started to shake again, but the shakes were more from fear than from his heroin jones. And Didi was about to spring to his feet and sprint back into the loft when he noticed on the dead hand hanging out of the wall something shiny. Two rings, one gold, and one diamond. New York City, a city that never sleeps, was also the unofficial capital of the land of opportunity. An opportunity for Didi Ramon just came knocking out of a brick wall. 
he quickly pulled the rings of the dead Manhattan Knight's fingers and headed out onto East 2nd to pawn them off, score some dope, and take care of his Jones. But it was clear to Dee Dee, just as it was to Joey and Johnny and Tommy, that in order for the Ramones to survive, in order for the Ramones to make sure rock and roll survived, they'd need to survive the squalor of their city. And for now, that meant retreating, getting the fuck out of Dodge, so to speak, and to bring their war to another shore. London was calling. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The Ramones were nervous. Playing outside of New York City was no easy task. The sting of being booed off stage in Waterbury, Connecticut on their first venture out of town opening for Johnny Winter, of all people, it never left. This was supposed to be different, though. The Ramones weren't opening for some tired, bloated rock and roll dinosaur. They were opening for the Flaming Groovies, a West Coast American rock band with jumped-up teenage energy and style. Plus, the Flaming Groovies were somebody's. The Ramones, to their estimation anyway, were nobody's. Their self-titled debut album had been released that spring in April of 1976 on Sire Records. Their friends liked it, as well as a few critics, but out of the gate, despite being a shotgun blast of pure rock and roll for a new era and harnessing a newfound energy and directness and image sorely missing in rock and roll at the time, despite saying rock and roll is here to stay with songs that barely made it past the two minutes and 30 second mark and said everything they needed to say in that time, despite all of that, an album that listed 14 tracks and clocked in at just 29 minutes and four seconds. Despite that, despite the no frills, the no fat, the no fucking around, no one cared. Or so the Ramones thought. When they arrived in London at the Roundhouse where they were performing that night, they headed to the back of the venue to enter through the backstage door and there waiting for them at the end of the darkened alley were four menacing looking figures blocking their entrance standing their ground, and they were in leather, looking, or trying at least, to look every bit as tough as the New York street gangs that they believed spawned the Ramones, who they were there to confront. Hey, one of them yelled before the Ramones got too close. Tommy Ramone started to shake. He popped another volume. Dee Dee was amused. These guys kind of looked like they did. Joey seemed nonplussed. Johnny was ready to pummel them and any other dumb Brit fox who got in the way of him doing his job that night. Before he could, one of them spoke up again. We're the Clash, man, and we're gonna be bigger than anybody. It was a weird comment, a weird way to start a fight, and also a weird way to introduce yourself. The Ramones ignored it once they realized there was no real threat and skirted around them and into the club. The Clash were clearly confused. All that leather, the iconic presidential-looking Ramones logo. The Ramones must have been a gang, no? And the Ramones didn't know or really care what the Clash were thinking. They had a show to do. Once safely ensconced in their dressing room, word started traveling back to the band from their crew milling about the venue in the back alley, loading in gear and getting set up for the gig. People were saying that all these local kids, cool looking kids, clearly scenesters, they were showing up early and wanting to get backstage to meet the band, to meet the Ramones. One of them, John Lydon, asked Arturo Vega if he could get back to meet the Ramones. Arturo said sure. John wanted to know if the Ramones were gonna beat him up when he went back there. But what the fuck was going on? The Ramones' reputation, or rather their image and their sound, preceded them. Tough, street, hard, fast, violent even. No fucking around. They brought all of that onto the stage with them that night in front of 2,000 people and crushed. 
The crowd loved them. The band encored three times and they weren't even the headliner. It was July 4th, 1976, America's 200th birthday, and the Ramones had made sure that American rock and roll had conquered. London would never be the same. Hell, the world would never be the same. In the audience that night, in addition to The Clash and John Lydon, who would go on to front the Sex Pistols as Johnny Rotten and his bandmate Sid Vicious, there were also members of The Damned, The Pretenders, The Adverts, and Generation X. Later, during their stint in London, as members of The Clash and The Sex Pistols cozied up to their new American rock and roll saviors in the Ramones, Johnny Ramone played the role of mentor. Mick Jones and Paul Simonon of The Clash told Johnny that, now that we've seen you, we're gonna be a band. And Joe Strummer worried aloud to Johnny that The Clash were lousy and that they couldn't play. Johnny told him that, if you wait until you can play, you'll be too old to get up there. The Clash took Johnny Ramone's advice and became one of the most consequential rock and roll bands of all time, and the only band that mattered. And the Sex Pistols took note too. Bassist Sid Vicious followed Dee Dee around everywhere in London. He was obsessed with Dee Dee's look, his playing, his attitude, his entire vibe, and Sid was eager to impress, to show Dee Dee that he was as rock and roll as he was. At a party, Sid was set on shooting some speed with Dee Dee. They hit the bathroom. It was disgusting. There was feces and puke everywhere, never mind the piss. The toilets were completely overflowing with all three. The sinks were broken and Sid needed liquid to mix the speed to shoot it from the syringe into their arms. He looked around, thought about it, said fuck it, dipped the syringe into the shit and puke-filled toilet, vacuumed up whatever liquid he could into the syringe, shook it to mix the speed, pointed the syringe into the crease of his arm, and injected its contents. Dee Dee Ramone, who wasn't shocked easily, was speechless. The Ramones, with their high-octane rock and roll, their old-school rock and roll attitude, their completely over-the-top and outrageously straight-ahead rock and roll intensity, had inspired something beyond their wildest dreams. In London, at least, rock and roll, it seemed, was very much alive. Traveling from show to show in a van, four guys, maybe a road manager and or a roadie plus a random groupie or girlfriend, it may sound glamorous, but it gets old quick, especially because you and your bandmates, despite your best intentions, are getting old quick. There is no way to stave off father time, but success helps. And for rock bands, success usually means a graduation from the van to a bus or maybe even a jet, but not for the Ramones. Back in the States, Johnny sat in the passenger seat. It was so he could control the radio, among other things. Whenever possible, they listened to the baseball game, Johnny's beloved Yankees. Aside from his bandmates, by his estimation, Johnny didn't truck with no Forest Hills losers like the Mets. And that's just what the Ramones were, losers. They'd saved rock and roll, inspired millions, including, it seemed, all of London, motivating scores of young, talented musicians to pick up arms in the fight to bring rock back from the brink. The Clash, Sex Pistols, Generation X, and they did the same back home in the States with the Runaways, among others. They were beyond the tri-state area now, and the Yankee game had long since faded. Johnny futzed with the radio dial. He stopped when he came upon The Clash as Rock the Casbah. 
He let the song play even though it annoyed the hell out of him. The fact that The Clash, a band he himself encouraged to get up on stage, was being played on mainstream radio, even more insulting, on MTV, while the Ramones were forced to tool around New England in a dirty van effectively singing for their supper, drove him nuts. And nonetheless, he let the song play out. The next tune to break through the speakers was Eyes Without a Face by Billy Idol, formerly of Generation X, another UK punk musician who owed his career to the Ramones, by Johnny's thinking anyway. His blood boiled. He went to change the channel. Indeed, he protested. Johnny told him to go fuck himself and changed it anyway. Up the dial he went. Soon, the caveman beat for Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll blasted back at them. It was too much. Another one. Johnny shut the radio off. In the back seat, Linda, Johnny's new girlfriend, looked out the window triumphantly. Johnny didn't notice. Joey did. He noticed most everything Linda did. It wasn't too long ago they were together. But then Johnny swept in and stole her away. It broke Joey's heart. Even Dee Dee thought that one was fucked up. Joey still didn't understand women, and with his chronic obsessive compulsive tics, he feared no woman would ever really understand him. Tommy was gone, he'd quit long ago. His replacement, Marky, was oblivious, drunk most of the time, happy to be part of the ride, for now. Dee Dee wasn't. It wasn't fun anymore. He wanted out. There was no joy in playing in the Ramones. So in the beginning of 1989, he quit one of the greatest, most influential bands on the planet that everyone, fellow musicians, critics, all seem to acknowledge. Everyone that is except for the record-buying public en masse. The Ramones weren't obscure by any measure, but they weren't a household name like Joan Jett or Billy Idol. They were a club band, a damn good one too, one of the best. But despite countless efforts, different producers, including the famed and psychotic Phil Spector, despite appearing in the film Rock and Roll High School, despite writing and recording the title track to Stephen King's Pet Cemetery film of the same name, and despite covering past hits by their rock and roll heroes and current songwriting gold, like Tom Waits's I Don't Wanna Grow Up, none of it helped the Ramones break through to a mainstream audience and to enjoy the level of success they deserved. The psychology of it all was enough to drive you insane. You're regarded in your day as living icons, as one of the most important, original, and influential bands of all time. You're out there slinging hundreds of shows a year. Your name rings out worldwide, yet you're not actually successful. You saved rock and roll, but it refused to save you. Breakup was inevitable. In 1996, after their album Adios Amigos failed to sell, the band performed their last show at the Palladium in Hollywood. And they were joined on stage at different times by Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, and Tim Armstrong of Rancid, platinum-selling recording artists, all of whom were enjoying high positions on the Billboard charts and regular rotation on MTV, there to help celebrate the legacy of one of their favorite bands, but whose success helped drive the Ramones off the road to ruin and into an early grave. Five years later, in 2001, Johnny, now living in LA, got the call. Joey was dead. The lymphoma did him in at the age of 49. If Johnny was hoping for a Ramones reunion, it wasn't happening. Neither was a cross-country trip to New York City to his bandmate's funeral. Even before the band broke up, the two hadn't really spoken in years. Joey's dysfunction and his drinking was a constant annoyance to Johnny. And Joey, for his part, never got over Johnny stealing his girl. There was no love lost between the two. A few years after Joey's death, Johnny was asked by a journalist for Rolling Stone if he attended Joey's funeral. Johnny replied, 
I was in California. I wasn't going to travel all the way to New York, but I wouldn't have gone anyway. I wouldn't want him coming to my funeral and I wouldn't want to hear from him if I were dying. I'd only want to see my friends. Let me die, leave me alone. Johnny wasn't alone on the night of March 19th, 2002. He stood at the podium of the Waldorf Astoria alongside bandmates Dee Dee, Tommy, and Marky Ramon and accepted his award for being inducted on the first ballot into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Finally, the recognition the Ramones deserved. It was the least the powers that be in the music industry could do. The Ramones had, after all, brought rock and roll back from the brink, injected a new energy into the genre in an era that desperately needed it, retracted rock from disco's death clutch, and bridged the gap between rock and roll's golden and modern eras. It was only fitting that the band who saved rock and roll take their rightful place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Johnny spoke first, as was expected. He leaned into the mic and in a head-scratcher, thanked Republican President George W. Bush for his award. Ever the contrarian, punk as fuck until the end. Tommy then spoke. He played on the emotion of the moment. Believe it or not, he said, we really loved each other even when we weren't acting civil to each other. We were truly brothers. Dee Dee took his turn at the podium and in typical Dee Dee fashion said, I'd like to congratulate myself and thank myself and give myself a big pat on the back. Thank you, Dee Dee. You're very wonderful. I love you. With that, they left the stage to genuine applause and gratitude. Joey Ramon's award, however, remained on the podium. Unclaimed. What a disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller.